We are in 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 28, going to chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, looking forward to continue on in 1 John. Uh, our series has been called Mere Christianity, uh, talking about the basics of the Christian faith. Almost everything John covers in this letter is about mere Christianity. What is the Christian faith? Uh, it's not just a sort of niche theological issue. He's primarily dealing with the essentials of the faith. We looked at a number of those. Last week we talked about abiding in Christ. Uh, this week we're going to talk about what it means to be a child of God. We touched on that a little bit last week, but in this section in particular, chapter uh, 2, 28 to 310, is really hammering home what it means that we are children of God. Now you might say, what does that mean? I mean, what does that matter that we're, we're, we're children of God? I mean, one sense we know that the only real eternal Son of God is Jesus, right? He's the, the Son of God. When you ask somebody, even on the streets today, you say, who is the Son of God? They might say all of us, but more likely they're going to say, oh, that's Jesus. That's Christ, right? Most people would say that's who he is. Now, Jesus is unique in that sense. He is the eternal Son of God with no beginning and no end. In fact, before there was a, such a thing as human sonship, <laughs> human parenting, uh, God related to his eternal son, the second person of, the, of our trinity, of the divine trinity. He related to him like a father relates to a son. That's, that's an eternal relationship. But we go a step beyond that in scripture. You might say, well, are, are we all sons and daughters of God? In one sense, yes. Scripture does talk about God uh, as creator, uh, the one from whom all fatherhood comes from. At one point in Acts 17, uh, in relating to these Athenian pagans, the Apostle Paul will say, we are all his offspring. And he's actually quoting from um, the Greek literature, and that was originally a reference to Zeus, and yet he's using it as a broader sense of the divine creator. We are all his offspring. So in one sense, yes, we are all children of God. But by far, <laughs> the most common way that is used in the Bible is that those who are in Christ, those who have received him as Lord and as Savior, uh, those who have been born again, those who, have, who are abiding in Christ are the ones who are recognized as sons and daughters of God. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that we relate to our Creator in this way? Look with me at John 2, 28 to 310. We read this. And now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As we are, we are children of God. There's an outline in your bulletin as always. If you want to see where we're going, take notes. Um, or uh, if you like to sort of uh, understand the passage and how it's broken down. Uh, but the calling here is that we are children of God, loved and transformed. Why does that matter? Because we can be confident that God loves us as his children, 28-3-1. We can be hopeful. God will come back for his children. If we're his children, he's not going to leave us. He's going to come back for us. And thirdly, be aware, 3, 4 to 10, God changes us as his children. If we're made in his image as a loving father, he doesn't leave us in our sin. So first, be confident God loves us as his children. He starts off, again, addressing the churches there in Ephesus as little children, uh, loved ones, ones that he cares about, that he as a spiritual father cares about. And he says, abide in him, which we see last week as one of the main reasons why he wrote this letter, is that they would continue on. Some have left the faith. Some have left the church. He says they're going out, proves they never belonged to us to begin with, but he's saying about them, I want you to stay, to remain, continue on abiding in him, so that when he appears, be faithful right to the end, when Christ appears, we can be confident at his appearing, that he's come back for us. We don't shrink back in shame at his coming. We're going to talk more about that in the second point. And then he says, 29, if you know that he is righteous which God certainly is, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We're going to talk about that in the third point. So he's sort of prefacing where we're going in this passage, that when we live as children of God, we begin to reflect our Father. But look at especially chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that would be called children of God. And even if the world doesn't know us, doesn't love us, doesn't care about us, he says, it doesn't really matter. They don't know God. But if God is our Father and He loves us, the point is almost to sort of marvel, <laughs> stop and reflect, uh, consider deeply the love of the Father that we would be called children of God. Now, many of us grew up in the church, you know, going to a church, and so the idea that we are sons and daughters of God is pretty common. Uh, maybe we've kind of taken that for granted. Of course, we're God's children. Uh, that isn't necessary, and of course. <laughs> God could have easily been our creator and not have been our father. Um, God could have, could have made us like he made everything else, the plants, the animals, and the rocks, and the mountains, and everything else, and doesn't look at them as children. God could have created us and looked at us like a beautiful piece of art that he made. I mean, he may love us like a piece of art, but not as children. Uh, for example, here's a picture uh, by a, a guy named Copley. Um, anyone who that is? Yell it out. Paul Revere. Okay, good. So Copley painted this in 1768, which, by the way, our church 
was around for three years by the time he actually painted this famous painting of, of Paul Revere. So this is a work of art by, by Copley, of course, as well. He, he made this, and it's, he put a lot of work into it. Actually, it was a unique piece of art for a couple of reasons. One, um, of course, is that he doesn't wear a wig, and his collars opened up because he was a, a working guy. So. But looking at, thinking of Paul Revere specifically, he was an artist. Uh, his job was a silversmith. In fact, that sort of deep compliment, uh, comp, uh, thinking <laughs> that he's doing in that picture is probably considering what he's going to do with that piece of silver. Now, I've heard a rumor that our church has some Paul Revere silver. I've never seen it, but I hear that we have it somewhere. So it's not in the basement. Maybe it's in the local library. I don't know, but it'd be kind of neat if we did actually have it. But God could look at us like Paul Revere is staring at that silver pot. What should I do with it? It's an inanimate object. I made it. I created it. You might say, well, Pastor Rick, I mean, we're not, we're living beings, though. I mean, we're not just like rocks and stones and silver. We're not just metal. Yes, certainly God could have looked at us like a pet. <laughs> I mean, we, we love animals. We're supposed to love animals. We're supposed to take care of them. God could look at us that way as well. We're, we're one of the, the living creatures. I, I love my dog. Hopefully, if you, you, you love your animals and your pets, that's not how God looks at us. He said, even that's not right, Pastor Rick, because we're humans. There's something unique about us. We're made in his image, right? Well, God could look at us like he looks at a servant, like we would look at a servant. He could look at us like he would look like a king looks at his subjects. He could look at us like a commander-in-chief looks at his soldiers or his army. But God chooses to look at us like his very own children, like his sons and daughters. And what does that mean? It means he loves us. Consider, contemplate, <laughs> let it sink in the love of the Father that we should be called children of God. You know, some people have this mentality of God in heaven sort of sitting there as a, as a cosmic killjoy <laughs> waiting for you to mess up so he can pounce on you with judgment and wrath. That's not the picture John gives the church here. The picture is one of a loving father who cares about us, who wants our well-being. You know, friends, we, we're called to trust him. You know, we can be confident when we approach God as a father. In fact, and particularly when it comes to prayer, uh, this is where we see the, the fatherhood of God come out a lot in Scripture when we relate to God in prayer. How did Jesus address God? He addressed him as Abba, as Father. And when he tells us how to pray, he says, how do you pray? Address God as our Father. And he uses illustrations to talk about our relationship with God as a Father. If you, as a human father, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more would your heavenly Father when we go to God, we go to one who loves us and cares for us as his children. We're not merely a pet. <laughs> We're not merely an, a work of art, a piece of silver that he has put together. We're not merely a servant or a soldier. We're his sons and his daughters. And he loves us. And friends, if he loves us, <laughs> what does it matter if the world loves us? Right? That's kind of what he says right in this passage here. The world doesn't know him doesn't know God in a relational sense without Christ. And so it doesn't know us. If the whole world is against you, um, but God is for you, what would you rather have? 
the world comes and goes. You know, their, their love comes and goes like a fad. One minute, you get your 15 minutes of fame, and you're in the limelight, and they love you, and the next minute, they turn on you and move on to the next thing. But the love of an eternal God who looks at you like a child is a whole other story. God loves you. Friends, if he loves you, spread that. <laughs> we talked about this before. If we are loved by God, then let's let that overflow and the way we treat others as well. Consider the love of the Father, that he has given us the right to be called children of God. More than that, we can be confident in his return. We can be confident in Christ's return. Look what he says. Beloved, we are, so there he goes again, you're loved. That's what the term beloved means. We are God's children now. So he's going to talk about what happens when Christ returns, when God comes back for his children. But he's saying, understand, already now you're his children. He loves you and relates to you in this way. Even when things don't seem to make sense. <laughs> even when everything seems to fall apart. Even when life doesn't seem to be going the right way, we trust him, we rely upon him, we recognize that God loves us and he's working out his purpose and his plan. But, he says, that doesn't even compare to what is to come for those who are in Christ. We are God's children now and what we will be has not yet even been revealed, <laughs> has not yet appeared. But here's what we know. When he appears, we'll be like him. Meaning our sin will be gone and the temptation to turn away from him will disappear and we will see him as he is. And he said, how do we see God? <laughs> well, you can see Christ in his resurrected, ascended body, but how do you see God the Father? You see him with spiritual eyes. You see him with the eyes of your heart. We'll be in his very presence. Friends, we will be with him forever. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When we have this hope of what is to come, it changes how we live now. What you think about, what you're looking forward to, changes how you go about your day-to-day -day living now. If that's your hope, that's where you're putting all of your focus on the day of being united with your Heavenly Father, it will change how you live right now. See, friends, hope in the Bible uh, doesn't have, see, we use the word hope sometimes with a, you know, it can be, can be very doubtful. For example, you could say, you could play, play the Powerball lottery and say, I hope I win. Now, you're, you're probably saying, I'm likely not going to win, <laughs> but I hope I win, right? Hope is never used that way in the Bible. Hope is an eager expectation. It's, in, it's a waiting for something with excitement. I think, what do, you, what do we wait for? What are we hopeful for? If you're a young, engaged couple, you're eagerly awaiting that wedding day. <laughs> that day's going to change everything for your life, and it does. It really does. And you're waiting, and you're preparing, and you're looking forward to that day. Or when you find out, moms, that you're going to be a mother, you find out you're pregnant, those next nine months are, are awaiting with eager anticipation, <laughs> hopefully lots of excitement, looking forward to that day in which this baby arrives. Or maybe when you're going away to college and you're, or you're finishing college, some college students here, you're, you're eagerly waiting graduation so you can 
get started with your career, right? You're waiting. Everything's going to change. I, gotta, I can put the books away. I can put, stop writing all these papers. I can get going. I can't wait for that day. Or if you work your whole life <laughs> and you're finally approaching that retirement day, you've, you've been working for years and years and decades and decades, and you, you can't wait to be retired. What does that look like? I think it looks something like, like this picture, Josh. I think this is kind of what it looks like. Kind of like that face right there, right? So that's my dad. He retired this last week. So after working for... Uh, <laughs> he started working on airplanes when he was 17 in the, in the, in the Air Force and is retired last week working on airplanes. So that's, that's the look of pure joy <laughs> that we're waiting. Uh, friends, we are hoping, hoping to be reunited with a Father who loves us beyond any love in this world. Yes, in one sense, the day of Christ's return is a day of judgment. It's in Armageddon. They have Gog and Magog. It's the apocalypse. You can use all of these terms, and those are biblical terms. But for us in Christ, it's reunion. It's to be in the face of the one who loves us beyond anything or anyone in this world. That's what hope is, friends. He said we can be confident, confident in that day. And again, that day changes how we live our lives in the present. You want to get focused on what matters in life? (laughs) Get focused on what's to come on the day of Christ's return. Folks, it changes how we view life. (laughs) What am I doing with this this period of time. We had a, a sweet lady uh, who was a member of our church for many, many years. I've never met her, um, but uh, she made the, the ornaments, the chrismons for our tree. Um, she passed away this last week at 105. Isn't that amazing? 105 years of age. Most people don't make it to 105. <laughs> However many years God gives you in this world, what are you going to do with that time? Well, if you're looking to that day in which we cross over into eternity, it changes how we view our lives. It changes how we view mission and purpose. What am I doing? What am I doing for Jesus? <laughs> what am I doing for Christ in this life? Am I ever sharing this good news with anybody? Or am I just bottling it up and keeping it to myself? I love how we're teaching even our, our kids, our, our, our teenagers, to be sharing the good news. That's part of what we just do as Christians. It's part of who we are. And certainly, friends, it changes how we view death. The, the cessation of your heart beating, uh, when your brain no longer sends out signals, synapses, I think that's right, I don't know, John Lucas would know, so when it stops sending out these little signals to the rest of your body, that's, that's the day <laughs> that most people dread, and for those in Christ, that's the day in which we will be in the presence of our Father. It's not a day we look to with fear. There is even a sense of anticipation. Hope, friends. That's what he's talking about here. When we have God as Father, we have hope. And I think we live in a time right now where there is a desperate need for hope. We live in a very hopeless world, a very hopeless time. Friends, even this week, I wrote this down in the announcements, About one week ago in Gilroy, California, three dead, 15 injured, shooter killed. 
In Dayton, Ohio, nine dead, 26 injured, shooter killed. In El Paso, Texas, 20 dead, 26 injured, shooter apprehended. All in the course of a week. What's behind this? What's behind this hatred? We know at least most likely with the El Paso shooting, there was a deep racism behind it, a hatred of Hispanics. Where does this come from? It comes from a lack of grace, a lack of purpose, a lack of hope. And sometimes, I think as Christians, we can play into this hopelessness. I listen to Christians, oh, the world is just terrible. Everything is horrible. It's all going in the wrong direction. We sound a lot like the world when we talk that way. As Christians, we're the people of hope. For 2,000 years, we're the ones who lift up and say, as bad as things get, <laughs> no matter what happens in this life, our hope is in the next world anyway, and our hope is in God. And we're going to do everything we can to serve him well in this life. He's our father. He loves us. He won't leave us. He'll come back for us. And then thirdly, friends, this last point here, the lengthiest point here, be aware God changes us as his children. He changes us as his his children. What does he say in verse 4? He talks about two different types of people. This is a sort of a harsh, harsh teaching of the Christian faith, but a true one. Find it in other places, but right here, at the end of the day, there are only two types of children. He says it right here in this passage. There are either those who are the children of God at the end of the day, or there are those who are the children of the devil. He, just, he differentiates between the two. Who are the children of the devil? Those who practice sin. Now, you might say, don't we all practice sin, Rick? Well, the emphasis there is on the word practice sin. Uh, he talked about earlier that nobody is sinless. If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. If you claim you haven't sinned, you make God out to be a liar. So he's not contradicting himself. He's not saying you have to be sinless in order to be a follower of Jesus, to be a child of God. What is he saying? Somebody who continues on, who's not abiding, who's practicing sin, an unrepentant, continual, perpetual sin. Yes, we will continue to sin throughout our Christian life, but we will not make a practice of sinning with unrepentance. That's his point. He describes them here as those who have been influenced by the devil, who himself is the author of sin, one who brought evil into our world. And he ends by saying, verse 10, one who doesn't love his brother. How does he describe the Christian? Quite the opposite. One who loves his brother, one who has had his sin removed by the grace of God, one whom the power of the evil one has been removed from their life. At the end of the day, he's saying, friends, be aware God changes and transforms those who follow him. If God loves us, which he does as his own children, uh, he's going to begin to shape us and mold us into his image. See, friends, what happens is when you become a Christian, when you follow Jesus, he describes it here as God's seed is in you. And that's a, that's a risky term to use. That's a kind of a, um, a, uh, a controversial word to use. The word seed there is... It's literally the word that's used for how you reproduce. It's the DNA, in a sense, of God. Now, when we are in Christ, his DNA, and I don't mean biological DNA, but spiritually is at work in his people. And it changes us. My, my wife uh, just recently did um, 
the ancestry DNA. And uh, her, her dad told her that they are a good percentage Native American. And her mom told her they're a good percentage German. And what she found out from ancestry DNA is that she's neither Native American nor German. So either one, both of those are actually false. She's about 97% British. She's basically a, a completely British person. So that's who she is. Uh, when we come to Christ, we have God's DNA working in it. A pastor friend described it this way. It's like, it's like a love sickness. <laughs> you know, the flu. When you get the flu, what happens? It, it, it takes over your whole body. And then it finds its way out of your body and spreads to other people. And sometimes if you're in a church that likes to hug, for example, our own, we spread that nice little flu virus around to one another. This is the opposite. This is, this is the love flu. This is the resurrection power of Christ at work in us that begins to transform us and change us and change the whole church. And in a sense, friends, your spiritual taste buds change. You know, your, your taste buds change over your lifetime. Um, I, I used to hate tomatoes, right? I have a picture of tomatoes. When I was a kid, I, no tomatoes, right? No tomatoes on sandwiches and no raw tomatoes. Spaghetti sauce, ketchup, that's fine, right? Well, yeah. But no, no raw tomatoes. Hate them. Now that I'm older, tomatoes are God's special gift to human beings, right? <laughs> tomatoes are delicious. I don't know what I was thinking about as a kid. What's happened is my, my taste buds changed. Friends, when you become a Christian, your spiritual taste buds begin to change. What, the, the sin that was so sweet to you, that, that sin that you enjoyed so much, so savory to you has become bitter, sour to your spiritual taste buds. Righteousness, you know, studying the Bible, you know, praying, talking about God beforehand, that sounded so bland. I'm not one of those people. That doesn't, that doesn't interest me at all. And then you come to Christ and your hunger and your thirst for these things increases. That's what he's saying. This is evidence. This is how we know whether someone really knows God or not. At the end of the day, does their life reflect a life that's been changed and transformed by God's grace? And if it doesn't, he says, be aware. Recognize that. Probably has a, a slight reference here to the false teaching he's dealing with. The false teachers taught again that the physical is all evil and bad. Spiritual is good. So it doesn't really matter what you do with the physical. Sin all you want. Sexual sin, whatever. It doesn't matter because that's all physical anyway. All God cares about is the spiritual. And here is John kind of confronting that mentality of hypocrisy. Someone who claims to follow Christ but lives in perpetual unrepentant sin. But friends, as Christians, we were called to live a life of righteousness, to follow Christ and to enjoy Him. He transforms us. He wants us to be aware. First of all, be aware in your own life. Have you noticed this difference? Have you noticed that you no longer love what you once loved? <laughs> you no longer love the temptations and the sins that once characterized your life. And if you notice, you know, I have a hunger and a thirst. I want to know more about the Bible. Teach me more about the Word. 
I, I want to I love people better than I do. I'm not great at it. I want to be more kind. I'm not kind. I want to hate racist tendencies within me, as we saw there in El Paso. I want to hate violent tendencies within me. I want to hate these bursts of anger that one's carried. Whatever it is, this lustful desires, I want to live for him. Your taste buds will begin to change. If you don't see that, he's saying, be aware. That's the mark of a Christian. That's the mark of one who follows Christ, one who is a child of God. Be aware of this certainly in your teachers. I think that's a big point he's making here as well. And not just your local pastor. Certainly be aware of that for me as well. If I'm a hypocrite, don't come back here. <laughs> so uh, I'm, a, I'm a sinner, don't get me wrong, but, but I'm just a complete hypocrite. But the same thing, those who you read about, those who you watch on television or listen to podcasts or radio, whatever it is, if their life doesn't reflect the message they're proclaiming, I don't think their message is worth the time of day. Be aware God changes us as his children. Be aware that our church, this is what growth should look like in our church, is this love flu. <laughs> you know, the resurrection power of Christ, is that spreading within our church? Are we growing to love Jesus more than we did in the past? Friends, if we are God's children, we're loved and we're transformed. Be confident God loves us as his own children. Be hopeful. If we're his children, he will come back for us. <laughs> He'll never leave us or abandon us. He, just as soon as you would leave or abandon your own child, would God abandon you. And be aware, God changes us as his children. He loves us too much to leave us in our sin. Pray with me. Father, I wonder if in eternity we will see this more clearly and recognize that perhaps the absolute greatest gift and blessing you could ever give us would be to make us your own sons and daughters better than having our sins wiped clean better than all of the treasures and gifts we enjoy in this life and they're good lord they're good food and friendships and family these are all good lord thank you for them but i wonder if we'll see with greater clarity in eternity that to be adopted be born of God and to be yours forever is the greatest gift and the greatest grace you could ever offer to human beings made from the dust of the earth and Lord we will enjoy that relationship of the love of a father forever and ever oh how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And Lord, we look forward to the day in which we will be like you 
and we will see you as you are. And until that day, Lord, we pray, we pray, Lord, that you would shape us and change us and transform us to be more into the image of your Son and to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.